Good evening, River's Edge. Matt Deason here. Uh, we had a technical error with our podcast recording this week. Uh, so I am going to redo uh, the teaching for the sake of the podcast uh, to the best of my ability. Tonight we are continuing in our series in the book of Matthew. So if you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, and we'll examine the baptism of Jesus together. We have an unbelievable amount of content to cover in a very short amount of time, so we're going to get right to it. If you were with us last week, Tracy talked about John the Baptist who is preaching a baptism of repentance and preparing the way for Jesus. And that gets us up to verse 13, where Jesus enters the scene. So chapter 4, verse 13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. So, let's stop here for a moment before we move on. These short couple of verses are stunning for a number of reasons. John is in the wilderness, and thousands, if not tens of thousands, are making the trek out there to be baptized as a sign of their repentance from sin and their soft-hearted willingness to receive the Messiah. But then the Messiah shows up, and John knows it. He knows who Jesus is, and immediately he is excited and humbled and even a little confused. Why have you come to me? John asked. I, I, I should be baptized by you. You're, you're the spiritual authority here. You're God. I need to come to you in repentance. Not only is he recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's questioning whether or not he should be baptized at all. Do you see that? And Jesus says, it's okay, John. This is the best thing for right now. It's fulfilling all righteousness. But John posed a great question. Have you ever stopped and wondered why Jesus was baptized? I mean, part of this is, is setting an example for us to follow, right? Because Jesus commands all his followers to be baptized in his name. And in doing so, we're not only showing that we belong to Jesus, uh, we are following in his footsteps. We are, we're mimicking his actions. And so every human being on the planet is invited to become part of God's family through this same avenue. We repent of our sin and um, of being our own God, essentially, and we confess our faith in Jesus as Lord, claiming the forgiveness He won for us on the cross. Uh, 
And then Jesus commands us to be baptized as a public proclamation of our faith and an act of holy adoption into the family of God. And by the way, um, baptism is not only commanded, uh, it's an incredible experience. If you have never been baptized, as in like full submersion on your own free will baptism, uh, we would love to get you baptized. So please let myself or one of the other leaders know if that's the case. Uh, I've actually had the privilege of baptizing dozens of people over the last few years. And last year, I actually had the privilege of being in Israel and baptizing people in the Jordan River, in the very same spot where they believe Jesus was baptized by John in this story. And it was beautiful and it was powerful, as all baptisms are, because we're walking in the footsteps of Jesus. During my own baptism, I remember I was just in tears, uh, which isn't anything too terribly new, uh, but I really was in tears, and I just felt the tangible presence of God in that moment. There's something powerful about baptism, but something happened here at this baptism that was even more unique and more powerful than the average experience. As Jesus is being baptized, it says the heavens or the sky was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Throughout the lifetime of Jesus, the debate about his identity raged on. Even at the end of his life, as he headed to the cross, there were trials and accusations and claims. Who was this man? But here at the start of his ministry, a blessing is spoken over him. Not by a priest or a fan or a friend, but by God himself which sort of ends the debate before it starts. I mean, case closed. This is Jesus' true identity. And so before Jesus lifts a finger, before he preaches a sermon or heals a blind man or talks to the woman at the well, he receives this affirmation, this testimony of the Father spoken over his life. This is the truth. This is who you are. This is your identity, and I love you. I'm well pleased with you. And so Jesus, like all of us, looks to God to find his blessing and identity. And he receives it most clearly right here. And so Jesus has now been uh, baptized and blessed and claimed and testified about, and he's received the affirmation and love of the Father and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He's ready to start a ministry that's going to change the world and alter history. But before he does, something else needs to happen. Look down at the very next verse. This is chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil. 
Uh, okay, so, so wait a second here. What what are we reading? Jesus was led by who to to be tested by who? Okay, so God leads him out to be tempted, or really the better word is tested, by Satan, our adversary. And instantly we are thrown into one of the strangest stories in the New Testament, if not all of Scripture. For starters, this single verse talks about the reality of the Holy Spirit and the reality of a spiritual source of evil which doesn't have a proper name, uh, but is called Satan or the devil or the enemy, uh, which are all sort of labels for this mysterious force of evil in the world. And, And at this point, I've already lost some of you. In fact, uh, studies show that about half of American Christians don't believe in this source of evil, and over half don't believe in the Holy Spirit, as in they don't exist. The scriptures, on the other hand, fully acknowledge the existence of a source of evil beyond stupid human choices, And it labels this evil and gives us forms for understanding and dealing with it. And so whether that's easy for you to believe or or difficult, either way, it's, it's real and it's important and we need to pay attention to it. The story we are about to read is Jesus clashing, and not with the totality of dumb human choices, but with the very source of of evil in the world. This is their showdown in the desert. Here's what we read, starting in verse 2. It says, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Like, really hungry. And the tempter, or the liar, or the accuser, uh, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Point and counterpoint. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Count, point, and counterpoint. This is, this is a battle. They're throwing spiritual punches at each other. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Wow. 
All right, so Jesus and the enemy face off in the desert, and Jesus walks away victorious, which is good news for us. But before we just note that and move on, I want us to slow down for a moment and recognize what's going on here. If you were to look at a map of ancient Israel, uh, you would see that Jesus uh, started his life and ministry in Nazareth, where he grew up, uh, and he comes down from this sort of farmable area of Israel um, out into the wilderness, or more accurately, into the desert, to be baptized by John. And then, uh, after being baptized in the Jordan River, uh, the Spirit uh, leads Jesus, we believe, to the south, toward the Dead Sea, and likely beyond it, into the true desert. This is um, the lowest point on planet Earth, and there is virtually no rainfall. This is an area so desolate and so harsh that almost nothing can survive there. And so aside from the desperate traveler or the wandering refugee, no one would cross through this area. And so the the first thing I want us to notice uh, is this. I want you to think about who was with Jesus in the desert. Was anyone with Jesus in the desert? And, and the answer is no. No one. There's, there's no eyewitnesses. There's no disciples. N- nothing. It's just Jesus being confronted by a, a non-physical, non-visible enemy. And, and I want to stress that last part again. Because most of us who would rather skip or ignore this story probably want to do so because we have some very strange images in our minds as to what this all looked like and what Satan looks like and all of that. Okay, so you have to clear the slate. And if you have any image of what the enemy looks like in your mind, I I want you to throw that out. Jesus is confronted by the invisible spiritual source of evil in the world, and he's alone. Now, you'll notice uh, that we're in the book of Matthew currently, and the book was written by Matthew. And so we have to stop and think, okay, so how did Matthew find out about this story? It's the only story in the entire set of gospel accounts with no eyewitnesses. And yet all four gospel accounts included it. It's that important. But but how did they find out about this story? The easy answer is that Jesus told them. Jesus had this experience And and it was fundamental in shaping his life and ministry. It was so fundamental, so pivotal, that Jesus passed it on to his disciples because he knew that they would face something similar. And what's Jesus facing here? I mean, what's what's this all about? He's facing an attack on his identity and his participation in God's mission to the world. 
there's a reason that we read these two passages back to back. Jesus is baptized. He's blessed. God speaks words of love and identity and affirmation over him. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the truth. This is the truest thing about Jesus. But look what happens three verses later. Satan comes to him and says, If you really are the Son of God... Really, Satan? Really? God just told him that Jesus is his Son. But but what does he do? He he comes in to undermine the word that God has spoken. And Satan is actually really good at this. He's been derailing humanity and stripping identities for a very long time. Jesus is not the first human to be tested by our adversary. And, And so what Satan does is he highlights the gap between Jesus' identity and Jesus' circumstances. Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. He is in a desolate wasteland where most people wouldn't last three. Jesus, for all practical purposes, is in a living hell. And what does Satan do? He attacks his identity in relationship to his circumstances. If you really are the Son of God, then why are you suffering in hell? If you really are the Son of God, if God really loves you and is actually pleased with you, then why are you starving to death? Prove you're the Son of God and make bread and let's end this thing. Do you see that? Do you see how Satan works in that? If you really are a daughter of God, then why is your mom dying of cancer? Why are you still alone? Why are you always struggling financially? Why is your life a mess? Why are you stuck in habitual sin? He challenges the gap between the reality of your identity and the reality of your circumstances. In this life, these two realities are going to grind against each other and Satan knows it and he's going to capitalize on it. And because we're human, we take the bait. We live in a country that preaches prosperity. Some more than others, but all of us do it. And the question then becomes, what does it mean to be loved and blessed by God? How do you know he's pleased with you? Well, you'll have money and a nice house and a nice car and Things will go well at work and the boys will be chasing after you and not the other way around and you'll be loved by those around you and you'll get more than 10 likes on Instagram and it goes on and on. That, that, that's what we preach to ourselves. But the reality around you is not going to reflect your blessedness in God. 
The reality around you is not going to be reflective of God's undying love for you. In you, God is well pleased. But what's the enemy say? Really? Really, you think you're loved? Look at, look at your life. You're living in hell. You're not a daughter of God. You're not a son of God through Jesus. You're a mess. And so Jesus, fresh off his recent baptism, faces this direct testing of his identity. And he doesn't take the bait. In fact, he stands on the truth of Scripture and quotes it back, and he does so with absolute lights-out genius. Here's what he says. Matthew 4, verse 4. It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What's he saying? Well, he's quoting Scripture, for one, but he's chosen this passage for a reason. He's saying, uh, people need more than bread to live. I mean, to truly live, you need more than food in your stomach. If you have bread and bread alone, congratulations, you're not going to starve, but you've achieved the status of a a chipmunk or, or an ant. You're not fully human. You don't have fullness of life. In fact, you can have bread and a roof over your head and good grades and a fancy German-made car and a trust fund, but that doesn't guarantee that you know where life is found. In order to truly live, In order to be truly human, you need a word from the mouth of God. You need a word of grace and love and truth and identity. We need the scriptures and we need the blessing of God himself. It's not worth anything to gain the whole world and lose your soul. That's not really living. You are a son of the living God. You are a daughter of the living God. And maybe your circumstances don't reflect that reality, but it's true, and you need that word of identity from God in order to truly live. Jesus slams this temptation into oblivion. Not a chance. I'm I'm starving to death. But I need more than bread. Jesus defeats the enemy. He passes the first test. And in doing so, he is proving his identity and becoming the perfect human that we could never be. Let me ask you this. Is there any other story in the scriptures where a son of God is called out of Egypt through the waters, and into the desert to be tested for 40-somethings. Israel. God calls the nation of Israel his son, and he leads them, just like Jesus, out of Egypt, through the waters. They're given a word by God, a blessing, a new identity, and then they're tested in the wilderness for 40 years. And and they aren't tested to fail so that God can shame them or something. 
They're tested, just like Abraham was tested, to draw out what's really going on inside of them, to refine their true heart and true identity. Check this out. This is the verse that Jesus is quoting in the desert. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8. It says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during those 40 years. God provided for you. He brought you through. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines, tests, draws out, sharpens, refines you. Which is exactly what's happening to Jesus. Israel if you know the story of the scriptures, fails their test. But, but what's the story being written here? Matthew, or really God through Matthew, is saying, this is the true Son of God, the true Israel, come for the redemption of his people. He will be the chosen one that you could never be so that you can be closer to me than you ever dreamed. Jesus is the recapitulation of Israel. He's taking on the role of Israel. Jesus is beginning to assume his role in the redemptive plan of God by becoming the perfect human to accomplish what no other human being could. And there are layers of beauty to what's happening in this account. In fact, what's happening in and through Jesus reaches beyond the borders of Israel. Through Jesus, uh, God is accomplishing his redemptive work for all of creation. And you can see it in the way that Matthew's written this thing. Uh, The very first verse in the Bible is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Page one, verse one. Most of us know that verse. Not nearly as many of us know the second verse in the Bible. This is what it says. Verse two. Now the earth was formless and void, or chaotic and useless. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and, listen to this, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, it's easy to miss in the English language, but hovering would have evoked images of a bird flapping its wings, hovering over the waters. Rabbi Zoma, in the absence of Matthew's gospel, said it this way. He said, for it is not written here, and the Spirit of God blew like the wind, but hovered like a dove flying and flapping its wings, its wings barely touching the nest over which it hovers. 
And so out of the chaotic waters, God brings beauty and order and Adam and Eve, and he speaks words to Adam and Eve, life-giving, blessing, vocational, identity-forming words. They receive a word from God, and then what happens a few verses later? The tempter comes in to test them. Did God really say you shouldn't eat of that tree? Does God really have your best interest in mind? Don't you think he's holding out on you? Do you really think he loves you? Look at your circumstances. He he told you no. He, he, He told you it would kill you. It won't kill you. And for those who know the story, Adam and Eve fail this test. As representatives for all of humanity, they fail this test. And the world is plunged back into chaotic darkness. Only this time, humanity is around to experience it. And and what's Matthew saying here? Thousands of years have gone by. The earth is sitting in spiritual darkness. The Israelites have gone centuries without hearing from God. Can you imagine And then, all of a sudden, a light shone in the darkness, and the same Spirit of God is hovering like a dove over the waters. For thousands of years, the enemy has been ruling on the earth. There is chaos and darkness. This is the human condition. And you've heard of creation, but recreation starts right here and right now. Through this man, the new Adam, this new representative for humanity, the perfect human being is here to usher in a new kingdom act of recreation. You see, the Israelites were anticipating the kingdom of God in the age to come. But they weren't anticipating the kingdom of God um, slowly overtaking the kingdom of darkness right in the middle of this age. And yet, here it is. The Spirit is hovering. Order and beauty and redemption are about to come flooding back in. But in order for this new kingdom to effectively invade the old, the new king has to challenge the ruler of this world and dethrone him. What's happening in the desert is more than a man being tempted to eat and choosing holiness. Two kingdoms are clashing, and we get front row seats as this drama unfolds. When Jesus is successful in the first test, Satan brings him in this sort of Holy Spirit vision uh, to the temple, to the highest place. And and this is what Satan says, verse 6. If you are the Son of God, challenging his identity again, throw yourself down, for it is written, and now Satan's quoting scripture. Apparently he reads the Bible or something, I don't know. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God 
to the test. Again, Satan's pointing to prosperity. If God really loved you, he, he would protect you all the time through everything. You'd never stub your toe. You wouldn't die before your time. You'd never have to bury your kid. Your family wouldn't be falling apart at the seams. If God loved you, if you were really his child, then he'd be like a genie in a bottle. And, and he would serve you and make your life really great. Jesus says, no. I'm standing on scripture, and I answer to God, not the other way around. And again, Jesus quotes a scripture about Israel's failure in the desert in the very moment he is succeeding in their place. Again, the devil took him in a vision to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. In the third and final test, Satan has given up quoting scripture and trying to strip Jesus' identity from him. Okay, I, I see. I see you know your identity, but how about this? I'll give you every pleasure that you could imagine and all the kingdoms of the earth. You're, you're, you're here to build a kingdom, right? You're here to impact people. All you have to do is bow to me and I'll give you everything you ever desired. And finally, Jesus says, no, that's not the type of kingdom I came to build and that's not how I'm going to build it. Now get away from me. This conversation is over, and so is your free reign on this earth. And from this moment forward, the kingdom of darkness is on the run. We'll see more encounters and clashes between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness as we move into the book of Matthew. But you'll notice that in those future interactions, the demons know who Jesus is, and they tremble, and they run. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus wins by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he comes out of this experience overflowing with the Spirit. And from that day forward, Jesus has been sacking the kingdom of darkness, tearing down its walls and strongholds, and taking back what is rightfully his. And this is where we find ourselves, in the crossfire of two competing kingdoms, the kingdom of light and the victory of Jesus on the one hand, and the kingdom of darkness and the defeated demonic powers on the other. And, and we have to choose how to live in this world and, and live well. So what do we do with all of this? First off, um, if you haven't been baptized, the call of Jesus is to place your faith in him and then follow him in the waters of baptism. And, and finally, after you get baptized, 
Don't expect your life to be easy. There's a reason Jesus shared his desert experience with his disciples. As followers of Jesus, we should expect to encounter resistance. God is speaking words of blessing over your life. You are a son or a daughter of the Most High God. In you, God is well pleased. He adores you. He loves you with an unfailing love. But if you're not suffering now, you will suffer eventually. And when you do, the predictable voice of the enemy is going to be there whispering in your ear. If you were really forgiven, if you were really a daughter of God, if you were really loved by the Father, you wouldn't be experiencing all of this. He would give you bread for your hunger. He would lift your feet up so that you wouldn't stumble. He doesn't love you. He doesn't see you. And if all of that fails, he'll just give you an offering from his kingdom. Okay. Well, maybe those things are true. Maybe you understand your identity. But here, compromise. Here's ill-gotten gain. Here's money at the expense of others. Here's intimacy outside of marriage. Here's whatever it is that calls to you. And when we face resistance, not if, but when, we do what Jesus did. We stand on the truth of Scripture, filled with the Holy Spirit, and we tell the enemy to get out of here. Because we belong to Jesus, the spirit of our victorious king is among us, and nothing, no power of darkness can stop his kingdom from advancing. Let's pray.